Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not a blogger. Something has to really annoy me for me to write a blog. I mean, that's, that's what it's been like lately. I'm more into video. As you know, we do a lot on the college campus. We do a lot in churches. We have a lot of videos on our YouTube channel. We have a TV show, a lot of video. I don't write a whole bunch on our website or on some of these other sites where I submit columns on occasion. When I do submit a column, it's because I'm really annoyed with something. And I was really annoyed with, I think, maybe a well-intended video from uh, the gentleman who really started, one of the founders of VeggieTales. His name is Phil Vischer. I, think, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, he put out a, a YouTube video with uh, another gentleman and the title of it is, What About Abortion? Should This One Issue Determine How Christians Vote? Now, I don't want to judge the motives of these two men, but this video has facts wrong, it has fallacies in it, and I felt compelled to respond to it. So I did respond to it. In fact, uh, there is a blog post on crossexamine.org, and the title of it is The Make-Believe VeggieTales Video About Abortion. This is also posted at townhall.com and stream.org. And the reason I wrote this was because, as I say, there are factual errors in it, and I think they're actually committing what is known as a false dilemma. And it's important. Why? Because I think the issue of life is extremely important, not just to Christians, but to our country in general. And we're going to get to that video and unpack it a little bit. But before I do, uh, I want to introduce a man. I don't know if I've had Scott on the program before. Many, maybe many years ago I did. I know he's been on our, on our live stream, Hope One. But Scott Klusendorf is when I think about making the case for life, the guy I think about is Scott Klusendorf. He's been doing it for many years. He started uh, working with Stand to Reason many years ago, and then he uh, branched out from Stand to Reason after graduating from UCLA and after graduating from Biola with a master's degree in apologetics. He started the Life Training Institute, and his website, caseforlife.com, caseforlife.com, that's one of his websites, has uh, a lot of great information on uh, actually defending life. And Scott does this with a team of people. He leads a team of people. He does this uh, on college campuses. He does it in high schools, both Protestant and Catholic high schools. He does it at crisis pregnancy center banquets. Uh, he does it on the radio. Uh, he has debated many pro-abortionists. And he is the best guy I know to defend life in America. And it's always great having him on the program, probably for the second time, the great Scott Klusendorf. Scott, how are you today? Frank, great to be with you. Sir, you are a champion of life. And uh, 
your material is so good that I want to share it with everyone. I want everyone to go to caseforlife.com. And by the way, when you go to caseforlife.com, you're going to see a video right in the center of the screen. It's a minute and seven seconds. Viewer discretion is advised, friends, but you need to watch that video. We put that video in my most recent TV show called Does Jesus Trump Your Politics? And YouTube censored it. So if you want to see that video, just go to caseforlife.com. Now, Scott, uh, you've been doing this for many years. What is the central issue that you're trying to get across when you're trying to show people the case for life? We're trying to get across the point that abortion is not morally complex. It's psychologically complex, Frank, in that we can all sympathize with a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant her parents are going to dump her, her boyfriend's going to dump her, her church won't accept her, and we feel sympathy for her. But it doesn't follow that the moral question of abortion is complex. The moral question of abortion is not about privacy, it's not about choice, it's not about trusting women, it's not about economic hardship. Nobody would give those reasons for killing a two-year-old. They only give those reasons for the permissibility of killing a fetus. Why? Because they assume the unborn are not human. They don't argue for it. They just assume it. The central issue in this debate is the status of the unborn. That is, are the unborn members of the human family just like you and I? That's the issue. Now, Scott, when they go to your website, caseforlife.com, our viewers right now, our viewers, our listeners right now, um, they're going to see that video but this is radio. We can't show them the video. This is a podcast. We can't show them the video, yeah. but I'm going to urge them right now to go to caseforlife.com as soon as this podcast is over or pause the podcast, pause the radio program, go watch that video. And then everything else we say after this will be academic because after you see that, you know, it's a human being, but be, we, we, we can't show the video here, Scott. So, so give us some reasons to really believe that an unborn child is a human being. Yeah, very good. Let me give you a one-minute defense of the pro-life position, which will center on the humanity of the unborn. Uh, suppose you got one minute to make your case. Here it is. I am pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, from the one-cell stage, you, Frank, were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Frank? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you at that earlier stage of development. Differences of size, level of development, environment, meaning where you're located, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Is that okay for a one-minute defense? That is great. And you just mentioned the SLED acronym. Unpack that further for us, Scott, because I think you came up with that SLED acronym. Uh, go a little bit deeper into each one of those, S-L-E-D. Sure. Yeah, the SLED acronym was originally put forward by Stephen Schwartz in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, but I've done some mm -hmm. modifications to it. We use it specifically to show that there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that's a good reason for saying we can intentionally kill you. Yes, there are differences between you, the embryo, but that's not the issue. The issue is, do those differences carry moral significance? And they don't. So let's look at those four differences. Size. 
There's your S in that acronym. You were smaller, but since when does body size determine value? We don't think that Shaquille O'Neal, the seven foot two former basketball star, is more human and valuable than all of us because he's a foot taller than most of us. Body size doesn't equal value. What about your level of development? You were less developed as an embryo, but why does that matter? Again, our critics need to do more, Frank, than simply mm -hmm. show a difference. they got to show why that difference matters. Sure, you were less developed as an embryo, but a two-year-old girl is less developed than a 21-year-old young woman. The two-year-old girl does not even have a reproductive system that's developed yet. It doesn't follow she's less human and valuable than the adult woman who does. I speak to teenagers all the time in schools, Frank, and I will say to these kids, you are less developed than your parents. You're less developed than your parents physically, and you're less developed than your parents intellectually, which, of course, comes to a complete shock to most of them. But the truth <laughs> is they're not going to reach their intellectual peak until their mid-40s. Does that follow their parents have a greater right to life than they do? Size, level of development. What about environment? Where you are doesn't have any bearing on who you are. Frank, when you left the room you were in, wherever you were before we started this recording, and walked into the studio, you changed location, but you didn't stop being you. If a change of location that is 70 feet in length does not change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable entity we can kill the valuable human being we can't. And of course, the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, changing your address isn't going to get you there. And finally, degree right, hold, of dependency. Hold the thought, Scott. Sure. We're going to come right back. You're going to come back and get give us the D right after this. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk, my guest, Scott Klusendorf, back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. I want to mention this Thursday, November 5th, I'll be at Hillview Heights Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky. That's about an hour north or so from Nashville. We're doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's very close to the university there. And so university students are really invited. The university wouldn't let us be on campus because of COVID, but we're doing it at a church right outside there. So hope you can join us uh, Thursday, this Thursday, November 5th. And then the following week, I will be at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, all three services, I believe, on Sunday morning, November 15th. The great Jack Hibbs, that's his church there. Looking forward to being there. So hope to see you either in Kentucky or California in the, in the coming weeks. My guest today, Scott Klusendorf, who is the head of the Training Life Institute. Now, Scott, just before the break, we were going through the SLED acronym. Uh, can you kind of complete your thought there? You had covered S, L, and E. You were about to cover D when I had to unceremoniously cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, sure enough. But one thing first, Frank, if you're going to Bowling Green, Kentucky, Visit the Corvette Museum and Assembly Plant. That's right there. You'd, you'd be sitting if you didn't. Uh, I would. You're absolutely right, man. The, the Corvette Museum it's is right there. there. The great right there. I did, I did not know that. I did not it's know It's right that. there. Uh, you'll be right sharing airspace with it. Well, back to SLED. Uh, right. So size does not determine your value. Level right. of development does not determine your value. Your environment where you're located does not determine your value, and neither does D, your degree of dependency. How does the fact that you depend on another human being mean that we can intentionally kill you? 
Would it follow, for example, that conjoined twins who share each other's bodily organs uh, somehow forfeit their right to life because neither twin can live without the other? Uh, what would we think of a mother who unplugged her child who could only tolerate the mother's own milk for nourishment and couldn't tolerate baby formula? What would we think of a mother who unplugged her own child and said, my body, my choice, he depends totally on me too bad? These are horrific reasons to intentionally kill an innocent human being. So none of those four differences, size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, are good reasons for saying we could kill you as an embryo, but not now. That's SLED, ladies and gentlemen. Commit that to memory because it's a great way of pointing out that every argument for abortion, uh, they, they don't work. In fact, every argument for an abortion is really virtually an argument for infanticide. You know, you're going to say viability. Oh, viability. Well, uh, an infant's not viable. In other words, it's going to die if the mother doesn't take care of it. I know some teenagers that aren't viable, right? <laughs> you just leave them alone, they're going to kill themselves. They're going to die. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> viability is not an argument. Now, what kind of objections do you get to the sled argument, Scott? And maybe you can address some of them. Yeah, sure thing. The, the number one uh, objection we get is, well, that's just your religious view. Uh, wait a minute, that doesn't work. Arguments are either true or false, valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious is name-calling, not refutation. Arguments don't have any category as religious. We've either got to look at them and say the premises are true or false, or we say the conclusion doesn't logically follow, the validity test. You can't just call an argument names and get away with it, and yet that's what a lot of people do because they want to take the type of claim you're making, which is an objective moral claim, and change it to a subjective one that they feel better about based on their own relativistic worldview. But you can't let them get away with it. you got to call their hand. Well, there's no question that you're going to get that old religious, you're just trying to impose your religion on me. No, we're not trying to impose our religion. We're not trying to tell people where, when, how, or if to worship, or you have to be part of a certain uh, denomination or religious group. But we are trying to impose morality, and that's what every... Everybody in the public square is trying to do. They're trying to impose some sort of moral position. And the pro-abortion people, in my view, Scott, are trying to impose, uh, or let me put it this way. The pro-life people are trying to impose continued pregnancy on the mother. But the pro-abortion people are trying to impose death on the baby whenever abortion is chosen. And that is a human being in the womb. But, Scott, you're going to get objections uh, that uh, deal with, say, rape and incest. What do you What do you do when somebody sure. says, "Well, should we have uh, shouldn't we have abortion for rape and incest?" What do you say, Scott? If the person is genuine and they're not just mm -hmm. trying to score debate points, I'll look at them and say, "Given you and I agree that a woman who's been sexually assaulted has suffered a terrible injustice, and given you and I agree that the child that results from that injustice may in fact." provoke painful memories for the mother. How do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Is mm. it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? In other words, I'm asking the question, does hardship justify homicide? If you wake mm. up tomorrow morning, Frank, and a neighbor, or, or sometime in the middle of the night, some stranger has dumped a ton of garbage on your driveway, you would not just take that garbage and scoop it over your neighbor's property to be done with it. You would choose to suffer the evil rather than inflict it. 
And the same thing is true here. Oh, by the way, the objection from rape does not satisfy the demands of the so-called pro-choice position. The pro-choice position is that any woman can have any abortion at any point in pregnancy, pregnancy she wants for no reason or any reason. Okay, mm. if the objection from rape at all even works, which, of course, I dispute, but assume it did, it would only work to justify abortion in cases of rape, not for any reason the woman wants. So it's really not a good argument for abortion choicers to make because it doesn't represent their true position. Saying that rape abortions would justify all abortions, as Frank Beckwith points out, is kind of like arguing we should get rid of all traffic laws because you might have to run a red light rushing a loved one to the hospital. And I think a question, and I know, Scott, you've probably done this quite a bit, especially in debates, is if you ask the opponent uh, who is trying to give a pro-abortion argument, if you were to say to that opponent, um, let's suppose politically I would agree with you that we could, we could leave abortion, uh, for the sake of argument, we could leave it uh, legal in the case of rape or incest, would you then join me in banning all other convenience abortions? Yeah. What are they yeah. going to say, and typically? <laughs> well, you, here's what's going to happen. They're going to say, no, women have a fundamental right to an abortion. Okay. Then I mm -hmm. say, aha, then defend that position, because by fundamental right, let's make sure we're clear what we mean. Fundament, what fundamental rights cannot be infringed on. If abortion is a fundamental right that a woman mm -hmm. has, that means you can allow no obstacles to her exercising that right. She can have that abortion for any reason she wants. Maybe she just decides halfway through the pregnancy she wants a boy rather than a girl. You have no moral grounds or legal grounds to tell her she can't abort the girl to get a boy. That's what a fundamental right entails. So you, you call their bluff, and this is what I do with the, the so-called crusaders. They're not intellectually honest. They don't really want to hear your answer on rape. They just want to make you look bad as a pro-lifer. And rather than ask the thoughtful question about how we ought to treat innocent human beings who remind us of painful events, we call their bluff exactly the way you described it there. We say, okay, I'll grant that we allow abortion in cases of rape. Will you now join me in opposing all others? And the answer is never yes. Hmm. What percentage of abortions are due to rape or incest at this point in America, Scott? Well, if we go by the Guttmacher Institute studies, which is not a pro-life uh, organization by any means. In fact, they once were the research arm for Planned Parenthood. According to mm -hmm. Guttmacher, in a very sophisticated study uh, done by Ada Torres and Jacqueline Forrest, uh, less than 1% of all abortions are due to rape or incest. Instead, the vast majority are for socioeconomic reasons related to the woman's social well-being, not because of medical necessity or rape. So they're more for convenience than they are for any medical issue or rape or incest. Is that true? Without question. Wow, it reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 7 when Jeremiah is told by God that the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy uh, Jerusalem and destroy the temple and make the land desolate because Israel was sacrificing their children to Molech. 
That's yeah. what's going on here in America. We're sacrificing our children to the idol of convenience. I don't know how much longer our country has, Scott, but uh, eventually God brought judgment down on Israel and maybe one day he's gonna bring it down on us. It could be on Tuesday, uh, this election day, who knows. Um, but we're gonna get back to this question. Should Christians be one issue voters after we continue to talk to Scott Klusendorf here, friends? Scott, what objections do you get uh, from people who actually will acknowledge that it's a human being in the womb, but they will say, well, it's not a person. That's an objection I hear. How do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, the first words out of your mouth ought to be, what's the difference? Have you ever met mm -hmm. a human being that wasn't a person? I mean, <laughs> these are things that are simply asserted. They're not really argued for. Then my mm -hmm. next question is, what property do you say is value-giving to warrant personhood status? And they'll usually say something like self-awareness or having desires. And my next mm -hmm. question is, why is that value-giving rather than, say, having a belly button that points out rather than in? In other words, I'm not going to let them get away with an assertion. They make the claim that having self-awareness is necessary for personhood. I want them to defend that claim. I'm not going to let them get away with just asserting it. Most of the time, pro-lifers buy the premise. They'll say, well, that embryo has thoughts by week 12 or can feel pain by week 16. Wrong answers. Don't buy the mm. premise. Challenge it. Mm. Why is that value giving in the first place? Then point out that if that's true, if what makes us valuable as persons is not our common human nature, but rather having a certain characteristic, you've just thrown human equality under the bus. Because if it's self-awareness, for example, that gives us our value and not our common human nature, those with more self-awareness would have more fundamental rights than those with less, and you can throw human equality on the ash heap of history. It also leads to barbaric uh, conclusions, Frank. You and I both know that idling behind this claim that the unborn are human but not persons is a worldview known as body-self-dualism that says the real you is not your body in any meaningful sense. Rather, the real you is your thoughts, your desires, your feelings, your interactions with others, etc., etc., the problem with body-self-dualism, once you divorce human value from the objective existence of a human body, you get a totally subjective rule for what makes us valuable in the first place. And might well, will make right. Those in power will make the rules. Let's talk about it more right after the break. You're listening to Scott Kalusendorf, my guest. I'm Frank Turek, and the show is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're talking about the case for life and should Christians be one issue voters? Don't go anywhere, we're back in two. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually gonna tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You will never, ever, 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 ever hear this on national public radio. Because despite the fact that they're public, they're not going to give the pro-life position. At least I don't think they would. Maybe, Scott, you can get on NPR and uh, give them these uh, amazing facts that you're, you're giving us today. Uh, we're talking about the case for life and also should Christians be one-issue voters. We're going to get there here shortly. Uh, but, Scott, you're a man. What would you know about abortion? This is a woman's issue. Well, how do you know I'm a man, Frank? That's quite a, uh, an assumption in today's world of transgenderism here. That's you're right. you're That's venturing right. out on thin ice, you know? Um, well, excuse the snark, but in a way mm -hmm. it's appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. Look, 
Arguments don't have gender. People do. Pro-life women use the same arguments as pro-life men. You've got to answer the argument. You can't just fallaciously attack the person making it with some kind of ad hominem assertion. You've got to refute the actual argument. Oh, and by the way, if no man can speak on abortion, let's reverse Roe versus Wade right now because it was decided by nine men. So this argument is completely vacuous. Mm. Now, there are people out there, Scott, that are trying to make the argument that, yeah, okay, we agree it's a human being. We might even agree it's a person, but a woman still has the right to abort that child. I mean, there's a violinist argument out there. Uh, you're going to cover a lot of this in a course you're going to actually teach on online Christian courses here next year, uh, the ethics of abortion. Uh, but maybe you could just give us a couple minutes on that. What are, what are some of the more sophisticated arguments the pro-abortionists are coming up with to try and defend their position while admitting it is a human being in the womb? Yeah, you mentioned Duke Jarvis Thompson's argument. Basically, Thompson argues this way. Even if we grant the unborn are human, even if we grant that they're persons with a right to life, it doesn't follow that the mother can be forced to use her body to support the life of another human being if she chooses to withhold that support. And she spins the tale of you waking up in the morning, finding yourself surgically connected to a, a famous violinist who's been put there by the Society of Music Lovers. The violinist has a fatal kidney ailment, but if he can be connected to you, to you for nine months, He'll get over it because your blood type matches what he needs to get cured. And Thompson says, if you woke up in the hospital and found yourself forcibly connected this way, it would certainly be nice if you allowed your body to be used that way, but must you? Now, that ought to throw us back a little bit, Frank. We ought to say, whoa, that's, uh, that seems to be a pretty bold response. She's granting our major premise that the unborn are human, and even going further and saying in her granting that they have a right to life. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think Thompson's argument is deeply flawed. And let me just give you a couple of quick bullet points reasons why, and we'll go into more detail when we start unpacking that course uh, next year that I'm going to be teaching for cross-examined. The first problem is that being hooked up to that violinist is not parallel in morally relevant ways to being hooked up to your own child. For example, the stranger is unnaturally hooked up to you. The mother is naturally hooked up to her own child. If the child doesn't belong in her womb, where does it belong? Secondly, what is killing the violinist? Well, what's killing the, uh, the violinist is his underlying pathology, his kidney ailment that is fatal. What kills the unborn in abortion? The intentional dismemberment of an innocent human being. Frank Beckwith puts it real well. He says calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like calling uh, suffocating someone with a pillow the withdrawing of oxygen. I mean, there's a whole lot more going on here than merely withholding support. So there's just two quick bullet points you can point to on where I think uh, arguments like this go wrong. It's true that if a neighbor is suffering from a cancer ailment and he needs your blood in a transfusion to survive. It's true, I guess, that you could choose to withhold that. But that doesn't give you permission to walk next door and slit his throat in the name of withholding support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, none of us would be here, obviously, if if everyone took the Judith, uh, whatever her name is, Judith Thompson's <laughs> situation or, or, uh, or thought yeah. experiment uh, to fruition. If we decided, if every mother decided, well, you know, 
this baby doesn't have the right to uh, nourish off me for nine months, none of us would be here. I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, I've noticed all those in favor of abortion are already born, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, exactly. It's, it, exactly. it's a very artificial scenario there, Scott. But let's now talk about the, the issue of the day at this point, because we're just a few days away from an election. And uh, the folks over there, uh, Phil Fisher, came up with this video that said, uh, basically, should Christians be one-issue voters on the issue of abortion? And one of the things he tries to do in this video is to suggest that there were more abortions before it became legal than prior. In fact, they said that there were 800,000 abortions in 1930, and that's about the number we have today. and so, really, Roe v. Wade really didn't create a big increase in abortions. Well, maybe it did initially, but it, the, the number of abortions have fallen in recent years. So Roe v. Wade's no big deal. How do you respond? Wow. Yeah, I saw that video. i got to tell you, Frank, I don't know that I've ever seen a bigger piece of garbage than what I saw in that video. It was tell us how you really feel, Scott. Come on. Don't hold back, oh, Scott. Oh, my goodness. Well, you, you said up front of the show that you were so angry, you, you just about had to go. Well, you did. You had to go write a blog post mm-hmm. about it. So, um, you know what? I'm psychologically angered by this as well. Look, you pointed out something in your blog post that is spot on. The claim of 800,000 illegal abortions uh, before Roe v. Wade back in the 1930s is completely bogus, and you nailed the biggest reason. The population of the U.S. at that time was much smaller than it is today. Now, let's think about this for a moment. 800,000 women getting illegal abortions. What's the source for that? He doesn't cite one. He makes the number up out of complete thin air. In fact, a more reasonable model uh, put forth by Thomas Hilgers and others, uh, a very sophisticated meta-study, looked at illegal abortion prior to Roe v. Wade and concluded that the highest number might have been 210,000 illegal abortions a year, but a more conservative estimate is 39,000 a year. So let's take the mean between those two and go with 89,000 illegal abortions a year. When abortion was legalized in this country in 1973, abortions went from 89,000 illegal abortions a year, which, by the way, that number can be contested as too high, but let's take it, It went from 89,000 illegal abortions a year to within six years being over 1.5 million a year. Don't tell me the law has no impact on occurrence. Do we really think the occurrence of rape would go up or down if we legalized it? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that answer. You know, they do. They do. They have said that they have a source for that number. 800,000. I can't remember what their source was, but it's obviously wrong. The population of the United States was only 123 million or so in 1930, 37% of what it is now. And the the, the procedure was illegal. So how did they think? I mean, it's just strange credulity to think that that was the number of abortions uh, back then uh, equal to what it is now. So they're basically saying the law really had no impact. The other thing that reveals an, another problem. I didn't write this in the column that I wrote on it, but they say uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, about abortion will decline by 12%, which seems to be a low number, because they are right that it's not going to outlaw abortion across America unless the Supreme Court finds the fundamental right to life, which I doubt they would in the Constitution, 
they're just going to send the issue back to the states. So California, New York, some liberal states will still have it. Maybe some other states won't, like South Dakota, maybe Alabama, some other Mississippi, right? And they, and they say, well, that's going to drop abortion by 12%, which is significant. But notice why they're saying it's going to drop by 12% in the video. Because they realize that when you outlaw something, you're going to get less of it. <laughs> right? There you go. They, they and, undercut their own argument. They yeah, do. Exactly right. They, yeah, they, exactly right. And Oh, by the way, 12% of a million abortions a year is no small number. No, uh, and they downplay yeah. that quite a bit. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I don't know the motives of these gentlemen. I, obviously, they're talking about voting, so I'm assuming they're trying to give coverage to Christians who want to vote for Democrats, because the Democrat Party not only yeah. is for abortion up to the moment of conception, maybe even after, up to, up to the moment of, of birth, maybe even after, uh, they also want the government to pay for it. So they're trying to find ways, it seems to me, to say, you know, it's okay, you don't, you don't really have to be pro-life. Well, you are pro-life if you vote for Democrats, because they're going to reduce abortions in other ways. How would you respond to that, Scott? Yeah. Well, first of all, notice that the goalposts have just been moved in the video. Mm -hmm. Since when has the pro-life movement only been about reducing the number of abortions? That's never been our goalpost. Our goalpost has been legal protection for unborn humans. Now, we rejoice when the number drops. We're glad to see that. But that is not our end game. Our end game is that each child that is conceived in the womb is legally protected. They just overlooked that completely. Frank, imagine a society that said, we're going to reduce slavery, mm. but we're going to remain or keep it legal for you to own blacks if you want to. We'll reduce slavery, but it's going to remain legally permissible for you to own a slave if you wish. A society that reduced owning slaves, but left it legal for you to own one, would remain a deeply immoral society. The moral compass of this filmmaker is broken. Yeah, not only that, but, uh, and I, I write this in the column, in the blog post, it is on our website, it's also at stream.org and uh, townhall.com, uh, that if it was Stephen Douglas who was going up against Abraham Lincoln, he wanted to keep slavery legal, and Abraham Lincoln, of course, wanted to abolish it, would, would we as Christians say, you know, it's okay to vote for Stephen Douglas because... Look, he, yeah, yeah, he's going to allow slavery to continue, and he's even going to use the government to fund it, but he's got other ways of reducing slavery. Would anybody be making that case, Scott Klusendorf? Not in a million years, or if it were spousal abuse we mm -hmm. were talking about. You know, a colleague of mine puts it real well, Greg Cunningham. He says, otherwise intelligent people suffer an IQ loss of 60 points when the topic of abortion is put on the table. And they start making arguments they would never make mm -hmm. for other moral issues. Look, there are sociological uh, underlying background issues to virtually every injustice in culture. Let's take spousal abuse, for example. There are underlying issues as to why men beat their wives. But that's not a good argument for saying we shouldn't make it illegal for men to beat their wives. And that's what this video and others like it. They just conflate our sense of right and wrong, and they end up making stupid arguments they would never make on other issues.
Friends, go to caseforlife.com and watch the video, the one minute, seven second video on that front page. You watch that and then you email me, hello at crossexamine.org and tell me abortion shouldn't be outlawed. Watch it. We're back in two minutes. Should Christians be one-issue voters, just this issue of life? That's one of the questions we're dealing with right now. My guest is Scott Klusendorf of the Life Training Institute website, caseforlife.com. You need to go there and watch that one minute and seven second video that we included. I included in a video that I put out that's on our YouTube channel called Does Jesus Trump Your Politics? I put that video in my presentation and the entire presentation is up for free at uh, YouTube, our YouTube channel, the Cross-Examine YouTube channel, and YouTube censored it. And so what we did is we put the link to that censored video within my larger video. We put it at the bottom uh, in the description of, of the entire Does Jesus Trump Your Politics video so you can see it. If you want to see it right now, the censored video, just go to caseforlife.life.com and you can see this video that my guest Scott Klusendorf uses when he speaks on the pro-life issue. After you see the video, friends, you cannot in good conscience before abortion. Just trust me. And if, if you think you can, you email me and tell me why. Hello at crossexamine.org. I may even read your email uh, at the next uh, uh, on the next program, but we're talking about uh, voting right now, and uh, let's go back to the video that they made, uh, the uh, the VeggieTales creator made, and uh, the actual title of the video for those of you who want to watch it is called "What About Abortion? Should This One Issue Determine How Christians Vote?" Scott, before I turn it back over to you on this, I do want to say one thing uh, that I have to get in the program here. We are not one-issue voters, but we are one-issue disqualifiers. What do I mean by that? Yeah. Being pro-abortion... Well, here's what... Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead, yeah. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, being... Let me say it this way. Being pro-life does not necessarily qualify you as a good candidate. But being pro-abortion or being anti-life necessarily disqualifies you. So there are many other things that I want to look for in a, in a candidate. I don't want him just to be pro-life. I want him to be pro-religious freedom. I want him to be uh, pro-defense. I want him to be uh, uh, pro-Israel. Uh, I want the uh, candidate to be uh, pro-race-neutral policies, which unfortunately now the Democrats, on page 40 in their platform, and you can read it, friends. Don't take my word for it. Go to page 40 of the Democratic platform, and you will see they are not for race-neutral policies. They want to give advantage to certain races and therefore disadvantage other so-called races. It's right there in their platform. So there are many other things I'm looking for in a candidate, but if you're not pro-life, you're disqualified. So Scott, let me go and ask you this. In that video, I think that uh, the folks that are doing this video have set up a false dilemma. Can you explain what that is and, and what is this false dilemma? Well, they argue that we ought to be about increasing health care for women, providing for women, and that's the most important thing. And the legal uh, effects of, of outlawing abortion aren't as important. Well, that's a false dilemma. The reality is we can do both. We can legally protect unborn humans and we can work to provide services that will help women in need. That's why we have pro-life crisis pregnancy centers that 
do an incredible job meeting the needs of women at risk for abortion. But Frank, I think you're right about this single issue uh, objection we often get. Of course, abortion isn't the only issue, any more than saving Jews was the only issue in 1945, or saving slaves the only issue in 1860. But both were the dominant issues of their day, and Christians are morally obligated to give greater moral weight to the more pressing moral issue of their day. And I think that a lot of Christians want to lump a bunch of issues in together and think they're all, are, they are all morally equivalent, when in mm. fact they are not. There mm. are intrinsic evils we must always oppose, things like rape, murder, intentionally killing toddlers for fun, and the like, and I would put abortion in that category. Then there are contingent evils that may or may not be wrong, but it depends on the circumstance. War, capital punishment, for example. What a lot of people like to do, and what a lot of people are doing in this election cycle, is conflating the two. They are coming out strong in their opposition to contingent evils in hopes we will overlook their willingness to tolerate intrinsic ones. And we cannot let that happen as Christians. Absolutely. And in fact, I unpack that idea that there are higher and lower laws, greater laws and lesser laws in the video, Does Jesus Trump Your Politics? In fact, it goes back to Matthew 23, 23, when Jesus scolds the politicians of his day. Do you know that Rome delegated most of the authority to the Sanhedrin and, the, and, and Pharisees were on the Sanhedrin? And Jesus went after these people when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are tithing your spices, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have tithed your spices, but you also should have not neglected these weightier matters of the law, more important matters of the law. Well, if there are more important matters of the law that we ought to be held uh, or, or that we ought to be concerned about, then abortion, obviously, life is at the top of that list. The right to life is the right to all other rights. I mean, Scott, we have people in this country, the government tells us what light bulbs we can and can't use, but they won't say don't murder your children. I mean, this is ludicrous. And for Christians to put a video together to suggest that ah, this is all just about the same thing, it's not that big a deal, which is essentially what this video that, uh, the, the, that uh, I'm just so frustrated right now, Scott, I'm sorry, I'm losing my sanctification, <laughs> that Phil Vischer put Vischer and the vegetal people, yeah. yeah. Now, 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 look, I, I don't know his motives here, but it's really strange that it comes out two weeks before an election of, uh, it couldn't be starker uh, between the Republican platform and the Democrat platform. It couldn't be starker. One wants to ban abortion. The other wants to actually have the government pay for it. And yet he comes out with this video trying to suggest, you know, it's not that big a deal. But I got to ask you this, Scott, yeah. because everybody's thinking this right now. Look, Trump is anti-Christian in many in his behavior quite a bit. He's rude. He's obnoxious. How can Christians vote for such a man? And should they look past him and look at the platform? What do you say? Well, let's talk about what Christians have a moral obligation to do according to Scripture. Number one, they have a moral obligation to limit evil and promote the good insofar as possible. Number two, Christians need to recognize that God holds sovereigns responsible for upholding justice for the weak and vulnerable. Who is the sovereign in a constitutional republic like ours? We are, the people. 
which mean God which means God holds us responsible to limit evil and promote the good insofar as we can. So choosing to opt out of the election or choosing to vote in a way that a further oppresses the weak and the vulnerable puts us in God's crosshairs. Now, about let's just take Donald Trump for example. People say he's got bad character. He his tweets are arrogant. Uh, John Piper even wrote a piece about this recently, mm-hmm. and I love John Piper. He's got great pro-life credentials, but I think he's mistaken on this point. And here's the fundamental point that I think people get mixed up on. We need to distinguish between sins that damn an individual, which all sins will, and sins that damn a nation by injuring its culture beyond repair. Envy is a sin that will send you to hell, but envy and rioting and looting are not the same. A looter damages our culture in in ways that someone who is privately envying does not. Now, both are going to stand before the judgment seat of God if they don't repent of their sins. Uh, Jesus said the same thing about lust. Look, uh, lust is going to damn you if it dominates your life and you don't bring it under control of the Spirit. But it doesn't follow that private lust and the act of public adultery manifest itself equally in the culture in terms of harming the culture. No, uh, adultery is far worse for the culture. In the same way, arrogant tweets are certainly a sin. Uh, Living a life of unrepentant past moral sins, uh, and I'm assuming here that, that Trump has not repented of these things. I don't know that. I'll just go ahead and make the assumption the critics do, but he hasn't. His past moral, unrepentant sins are not going to kill unborn children in the womb. The policies of Joe Biden will. They will injure this nation in a national sense. So when people conflate these two things and fail to distinguish between individual sins that damn a person and public policy sins that damn a nation, I think they uh, overlook uh, an important distinction. Scott, we just got about a minute and a half left, but you had a great insight, a great analogy that I actually included in my column, the make-believe VeggieTales video about abortion. Can you just relate that real quickly? Well, imagine a schoolhouse is on fire and there's children trapped inside. You're, You're going to go in and rescue. There's a rude talking man who puts out aggressive tweets that are very arrogant, and he's willing to join you risking his life to save the children. There's another man standing there who is seen as more polite, more reserved. Not only will he not help you, he's also going to go into the building, but not to save children, but rather to pour gasoline on the fire. Which of those two guys is the one you want working with you? Well, it's obvious. Uh, The crude talking man is your guy. He's willing to help you save children. And right now in the United States, it's a real simple choice. Uh, We have a choice between a first-class arsonist who's going to burn down legal protections for unborn children and a second-class fireman with questionable character, but he's willing to help you put out the blaze. What's your choice, given that? I think we know. Hmm. Well said, Scott. Scott, give everyone your website again so people can know where to get a hold of you and see more. Well, they can go to our principal website, which is ProLifeTraining.com prolifetraining.com. But as you mentioned, to see that video, they need to go to caseforlife.com. Caseforlife.com. Scott, it's always a pleasure. You're, you're such a pro at this issue. I'm so glad you're on our team.
Frank, I'm glad you are. Keep fighting the good fight, my brother. All right. That's the great Scott Klusendorf, ladies and gentlemen. Tasteforlife.com. Go watch that video, one minute and seven seconds, and then email me, hello at crossexamine.org, and tell me abortion should not be illegal after you watch that video. And by the way, if anyone has had an abortion or encouraged one, there's forgiveness under the cross of Christ. Hope to see you here next week. Don't forget to vote, ladies and gentlemen. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.